0: David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Elah e Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Adinabab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahia went before the ark. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obidadam, to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened an animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings, the peace of the offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed. Each to his house.
1: Almighty and everlasting God, who gave to your apostle Bartholomew grace truly to believe and to preach your word. Grant that this church may love what he believed and preach what he taught. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Good evening. I open with the collect for St. Bartholomew's Day because that little phrase, that we may love what he believed, grant your church, this church named for St. Bartholomew, to love what Bartholomew believed. Tonight, in our journey of becoming St. Bartholomew's, tonight in our journey of looking at the monarchy of Israel in First and Second Samuel, as they became a people— Israel, and as we try to glean some insight from their experiences, from their pitfalls, from their successes, the thing I want us to focus on is our fundamental disposition as a people. Meaning, when we say something like, Take my heart, Lord, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, what does that mean? What does it mean to give God our heart? How does that happen? What does our inner being look like in that moment? How does that order our lives? In other words, how does our worship, the way that we face God, the way that we redirect our desires, our affections, everything about us, how does that then flow into our lives of being fully human? You see on the front of your bulletin, maybe you've seen it on our website, we've talked about it a lot, that God has made us to be fully human. Meaning, he's made us to be the people that he has envisioned. Now, we can't do that apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. We certainly can't do it apart from the gift of being that comes from the Father of heavenly lights as he breathed into us his being. As he breathed into us through our father Adam, Yes, even that old guy, Adam, the first king, remember we've been talking about really the first kingdom is Eden, and the first king and priest is Adam, in the same way that God breathed life into Adam, then we are to put ourselves in God's presence in such a way. And so what I want to look at tonight is how orthodoxy, meaning right worship, or write praise, literally ortho, right? You, maybe you've been to the orthodontist. It doesn't mean give me money. Sorry for anybody that's north. <laughs> it means right, orthodontics, or to right your teeth. In orthodoxy, doxa being this Greek word for glory, means worship or praise. So right praise, right worship. Orthodoxy leads to ordered lives. When we have this fundamental disposition of adoration, then our lives, our families, our communities, our societies, the world around us can be rightly ordered. This is something that even a guy named Jordan Peterson, who's not necessarily a Christian, has recognized in a book 12-something. All I remember is the number 12. It really left an impression on me. But he said... The world without the general moral authority that the church used to bring with it is kind of devolving into chaos. And where there's, where there's worship of God... There should be an ordering of lives. Bishop Robert Barron, if you've been here the last few weeks, you recall we've been quoting from his theological commentary on 2 Samuel. He says this about Adam's fundamental position as a human being before God, before the fall. The same would go then for all the Adams that would follow Adam, namely David in this text and us. To adore God, is to be mouth-to-mouth with him. So adoration, the the Latin word adoratio, ad ora, to the mouth. It means literally to be mouth-to-mouth with God, breathing in his divine life and breathing out praise. One of the reasons that this prayer for St. Bartholomew's feast day is part of our core of our vision, to love what he believed it's because we want our minds and our hearts to be centered around God, centered around his kingdom, centered around his gospel. Now, when you think about First and 2 Samuel, the story of Israel, think about all the moments of wrong worship or right worship. At the very beginning of the book, we hear about Elkanah and Hannah, and remember Hannah's prayer and God's presence. She wants a child desperately. All of Elkanah's other wives have kids, but Hannah doesn't, so she prays. Eli sees her praying with all of her heart, and he says, your prayer is going to be answered. We see some orthodoxy in Hannah. She's face to face with God, begging God for this. We see once Hannah conceives and has a son, Hannah and Alkanah take the baby up to Shiloh and they give him to the Lord at the temple, at the tabernacle at Shiloh. And so that baby grows in the presence of God. We see Samuel growing in favor with God and man in the Lord's presence. I'm just calling your attention to all these moments of worship, anything surrounding the worship of Israel, the worship of the God of Israel. We remember the reason that Saul was rejected as king of Israel was because he could not fundamentally obey God. One of those key moments was when instead of, instead of devoting Amalek to destruction because said God said, Saul, I have a plan. I'm going to bring judgment upon Amalek and I'm going to do it through you. And Saul said, wow, I don't know so much. Look at all the, these great women. Look at all the gold. Look at all the cattle and the horses and livestock. And Saul did not obey God. Saul did not step into and live in orthodoxy. Saul was not... Adoratio, mouth to mouth, face to face, breathing in the divine life of God and breathing out his praise. And so Saul's kingdom was a hot mess. It was not well-ordered. Saul was rejected as king. And we come to our story today today. David, he's been established as king, chapter 5. Remember, he's he's acknowledged as the king by the the elders of Israel. He's anointed as the king. He establishes his kingdom. He and his men go up the the drainage ditch at the, the bottom of that city of the Jebusites. They take it over. They create the city of David. And David... Being a man after God's own heart understands that he needs to center his kingdom around the worship of God. And so what's one of the first thing that David does? He gets 30,000 men. We remember that the ark was lost back in 1 Samuel 4. The ark was lost and it was a total embarrassment to the people of God. Remember, Saul's rule was chaos. And when the ark was lost, how many men of Israel died? 30,000. And so David takes 30,000 men, and he's going to go to this place on this hill, the house of Abinadab. That's easy for you to say, Jay. He goes to the house of Abinadab because he wants to bring the ark back, and he wants to put it in the city of David because he knows that for his kingdom to be rightly ordered, it needs to be ordered around the worship of God. And so David goes to the house of Abinadab, they get a brand new cart. It's the best cart out there. It's like a 2019 Subaru SUV. I just read about one this morning. It's the best cart out there. And he has Abinadab and his two kids, Uzzah and Ahio, are ready to transport the cart. And in a moment, this wasn't in your reading, but in a moment, as the, the Ark is on the cart, now you remember that the Ark isn't supposed to be on a cart. Do we remember that? Just make a mental note. FYI, back in the book of Exodus, God instructed the people of Israel, when you carry the ark, use poles. Poles. This is something wholly different, God says. This is the place of my presence. In it are the the tablets of the law, manna from the Exodus journey, the staff that budded, and on the cherubim, it says in first, Second Samuel 6, that's where the name of the Lord resides. This is, a holy, this is a holy artifact. This is the center of the worship of the people of God. If there's anything about orthodoxy or right praise or right worship that the people of Israel have, this is it. Now, Uzzah doesn't seem like such a bad guy. Uzzah's just one of the kids of Abinadab. The ark ended up at his house and had been there for quite a while. They've got, they've got the cart, they've got the ark, and you know how oxen are prone to be. You've probably worked with oxen in your day, as, just as I have. They can be stubborn. And one of the oxen startles, and the cart tips, and the ark falls off. And Uzzah, remember, a good guy, decent fellow, reaches out to touch the ark to steady it. Now, stop right there. What was probably going through Uzzah's mind? This is important. The king is here. They've got t- These guys behind me have tambourines and castanets and lyres, etc., etc., etc. This is a big deal. This thing has been at our house for all this time, and we're taking it to the city of David. I'm going to stop this. But what happens to Uzzah? Do you, remember, you know the story? We didn't read it tonight, but it's in there. He struck down. Now, one of two options that you could say. One, you could say, well, Uzzah, he probably had some unconfessed sin. Or he wasn't the right person. You could fill in all sorts of things. The one explanation that, or, or you could say, like maybe um, people who are kind of against Christianity, kind of the new atheists, if you will, or even the, even the god of the Enlightenment era from the 1700s on paints a picture of a god who is over and against creation. Here is creation, the universe, the galaxy, and God is powerful and strong and outside of it and against it. And one professor, a guy named Matthew Levering, who's who's hilarious, says that kind of a God, for humans to interact with him, either have to succumb to his punitive transcendence, or it's like a jack and the beanstalk scenario, where you climb up the beanstalk, you steal a bunch of stuff, and you get down as fast as you can. The God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, like we sang earlier, God of the, of the armies of Israel, the hosts of heaven, is wholly other. He is not the giant at the top of the beanstalk, but he is also not a docile thing. When Uzzah comes into contact with the Ark of the Covenant, in a sublime, solemn, and terrifying way his life is taken from him. Not because of a capricious God, but because of the order of things. God is God, and we are not. Does that make Uzzah unorthodox? I don't think so. I think he was trying. I'm not trying to give us a new law to adopt, but what I am trying to show us is that The fact that we can be face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth with God, breathing in his divine life and breathing out his praise is a cosmological miracle. It is an invitation truly to abundant life. Orthodoxy leads to ordered living. So David is terrified. This is the first time that we really see David rattled, in my opinion. He's afraid of God, and rightly so. It's the same that Mr. Beaver told the Pevensey children when they're talking about Aslan the lion. Oh, so he's a good lion. Oh, Mr. Beaver says, oh, excuse me, they say, oh, so he's safe. And Mr. Beaver says, oh, no, he's not safe, but he's good. This is the God that invites us to be with him, to stand with him, to fundamentally order our lives around him. It's interesting to me, as I was meeting with some of you, I I love to meet with parishioners throughout the week, especially new people, help help them get adjusted to the life of the church, help them understand the vision, et cetera. And as I was meeting with with two different people at two different times, the subject of worship came up. One one person from a very uh, sort of Anglo-Catholic background we talked about worship a long time because this person was coming from a different background to St. Bartholomew's, which is a little more relaxed, a little less formal, but still, you know, prayer book, liturgical, yada, 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 all those, all those words. And it was, it was so exciting to me the way that this person loved the worship of God. The way that this person loved to be in God's presence and learned how to breathe in his presence and breathe out his praise in a different tradition from ours, but still the same family. And yet another person the next day was coming from a completely different background, one more like Amy and I came from, like a Baptist tradition. And this person said, you know, I'm still getting used to the, the liturgy. Is that what you call it, the liturgy? And we talked about liturgy and what that means. He said, I'm still getting used to it, but there's something about it that I just know that I need this that my soul needs it. I took Josiah and one of his buddies to an FC Dallas game last night up in Frisco. And I've really, soccer has really grabbed a hold of my heart lately because of the pure athleticism of the World Cup. And I don't know what else. But at the game, you have 20,000 people at this stadium. It's so hot, but people are so engaged with the game. But not only that, but they have, they have tokens of their devotion. They have their shirts, they have their hats, they, ha- they have little stole, like scarves. I mean, I want to call them soccer stoles, like they're soccer priests. But it's like, a, it's like a religious thing. I mean, somebody who's never watched American football could say the same thing. But they have the stoles, and they have the cheers, and there's like a liturgy. Before the match, you don't even call it a game, you call it a match, they're different words. Before the match, there's songs that you sing, and there are ways that people walk, and there's a different, there's a procession, and there are all these things, and there's a musical group down on on this one end of the field, and they're playing these things, and everybody knows what to sing. And I thought, well, good Lord, this is like church. Do you know why? Because the whole goal of all of the liturgy of an FC Dallas game is to what? Do you know what the hashtag for FC Dallas is? Dallas, till I die. Like they've been around for 300 flipping years or something. And part of me chuckles at it, but the other part of me, I'm like, well, this is kind of genius. They are immersing the fans. The fans are immersing themselves into a rhythm of songs sung, of words said, of celebration, of mourning of castigating the referees when they don't get the call right. Everybody knows their part to play, but it orders their lives in such a way as to make them a fan of FC Dallas. Guys, friends, if there is any purpose of our worship every Sunday night at 5 p.m., a refuge from the searing hot sun, It is that our lives may be ordered around the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that our lives as individuals and our our lives as a people called St. Bartholomew's would be ordered in such a way that when we say, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, it's not we're grasping for something. We realize that there is the living God, the God of energy, vitality, and wrath who has deigned to show mercy to us, and we say, God, I've screwed up again. I give you my heart. I have lived a disordered life, worshipped other things, sought after other idols. I've tried to fix the cart with my own hand, or I've struck the rock twice as Moses does. But Lord, I give you my heart. I am face to face with you. I'm breathing in your divine life. And I'm breathing out your praise. That's what it means to love what Bartholomew believed. He believed in a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So much so that after the outpouring of the Spirit, Bartholomew went east as a missionary, taking the gospel to India, then being killed for his faith. So we see this this. this act of worship and David bringing the ark back, we see this procession of singing and dancing. Now, if you're like me, when you think of dancing and singing and all this stuff, you think, oh, this must have been like a spontaneous celebration. This must have been like an off-the-cuff, like flash mob that would have gone viral. Or like in a musical where all of a sudden there, it was a circus, but now it's, you know, Whatever. Gosh, we play that soundtrack all day long at my house. Chris Chris and I are going through therapy for a certain certain Hugh Jackman picture right now. But it it wasn't like that. That they were just there and they're like, okay, guys, two, five, six, seven, eight. And then it's, you know, automatic celebration. They made plans. They brought the instruments in. They brought the musicians in. They coordinated. They had songs written. They were prepared. They thought ahead. Did you remember? Did you see what you read in Psalm 24? That was a liturgical psalm for bringing the ark into the tabernacle or the temple. Open the mighty gates so that the King of glory may come in. This was not haphazard, this was intentional, planned out. Resources were given to it. It took money and time and effort. And it's beautiful. You got to orient yourselves around something if you're going to live lives of orthodoxy that lead lives of ordered living around the kingdom of God. And so we see in this liturgical procession, did you notice that we process? following the cross in, and we'll process following the cross out. We didn't just make this stuff up, somebody once asked me. you make that up? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm flattered that you thought I did. The church has seen fit to order itself in these ways for a long, long time. But in this procession, we see a dance. And here he is again, David our king, but not only our king, in this passage he is set apart and he is shown to be a priest. He's wearing the linen ephod. That's the same garment that the priest wore. You read it all about in Exodus, Leviticus. Samuel wore the ephod. We see David sacrificing. They take six steps. Boom! Sacrifice. I don't think every six steps they sacrificed. But in that moment... David presided over the killing of these animals. And remember what a sacrifice was in that day. It's bloody, it's smelly, it's horrific. It costs a lot. So David presiding as a priest, but then we see him dancing. And I want to call your attention to two different dances as we close. David is dancing before the Lord. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 6. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Remember, this is his established citadel, would become present-day Jerusalem. It's a beautiful place. Michael, the daughter of Saul. Now, it's not even Michael, his wife. It's Michael, the daughter of Saul. Do you feel the tension already? Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw who? King David. King David not just David, but not her husband, but King David, the one who's anointed, the one who is a king and a priest, leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She despised David in her heart because of his dance before the Lord. But there is something in the linen ephod, FYI, is kind of like underwear, And later on when she says, oh, you know, how the king of Israel dignifies himself by exposing himself more or less is what she's saying. But Bishop Robert Barron says, what the writer's trying to do is to call us back to that first king and that first priest, Adam, that first one who stood before God, the first one who before the fall walked with God in the cool of the day in all of his glory. And there is a simplicity and a beauty there. I'm not condoning that activity for you, might I add, or for those of you listening on the interweb. So that's one dance, not pleasing to Michael, daughter of Saul, also David's wife. And Michael's destiny would just go downhill from there. So you see the juxtaposition of orthodoxy. Even though David became and even more dignified than this, his reign and his favor would increase until his many debacles. But Michael would, would be barren and, and Saul's line would die off completely. But there's another dance. That of Zalame, Herodias' daughter. This dance, this sort of way of ordering her life, was not pleasing to God. It was a dance that ended up entrapping Herod, which he was no saint, and leading to the death of John the Baptist. One dance with David, again, orthodoxy, leading to ordered life, family, kingdom. Another dance, Zalame not orthodoxy leading to death. I've been talking about being face-to-face with God. Eugene Peterson, in, in translating or paraphrasing Matthew chapter 11, puts these words in the mouth of Jesus when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He says, Come to me, And learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. Our lives of orthodoxy, of of adoratio, face-to-face with God, mouth-to-mouth with Him, it's a dance. It's not going to be perfect math every time. We're going to step on somebody's toes. God's going to step on our toes, perhaps. There'll be necessary suffering. But the whole idea is that we're learning this effortless dance of grace, these unforced rhythms of grace. And when we think about becoming a people called St. Bartholomew's, when we think about and seek to live out loving what he believed, that is exactly what God's inviting us into. It's good, it's beautiful, and it's part of our path of being fully human. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so much. Thank you, Lord, that you have not struck us down like Uzzah, but have invited us to yourself and your son, Jesus Christ, that you've given us your very spirit in your Holy Spirit. Lead us now as we learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Lead us now as we learn to dance the dance of life. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.